Welcome to the Big Careers Small Children podcast. My name is Verena Hefti. I believe that no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. For far too long, brilliant people have found themselves stuck on the career ladder when they have children, which leads to gender inequality and the same stale, mostly male, middle-class people leading our organizations. We need to change this. And in fact, my hope is that many of you listening now to this podcast will progress to the most senior leadership roles possible, where you make decisions that make our world a better place for next generations and especially for the next generation of parents. Beyond the podcast, I am the CEO and founder of the Social Enterprise Leaders Plus. If you want support from brilliant like-minded peers, join events or find out about our world-class career development program, the Leaders Plus Fellowship Program, then sign up to our monthly newsletter on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter. By 3rd of October, you can apply for our fellowship for ambitious working parents in the NHS. It's our first sector-specific fellowship program and also will open applications in 2023 for our cross-sector fellowship to support working parents who are ambitious in their careers. Not everyone is in a couple relationship, but for those of us who are, we do tend to spend a considerable amount of time thinking about how to combine and negotiate two big careers with young children and all the commitments that are involved. So that's why I've taken the best snippets from some of the previous conversations about couple relationships and put them together into a compilation episode for you. I hope you find it really useful and enjoy the conversation. First up is Nick Wilkie, the former CEO of the charity NCT. He and I had a conversation where he challenges me in a really good way about expectations we have of couples. Going back nine years now when we decided to try and be parents, we agreed that we wanted to try and rotate. Neither of us is the greatest juggler in the world. And we decided we wanted to try and rotate. And therefore, uh, when our first was born, we did it so that I gave up my job. The law was a little bit different then. And so I stopped being the chief executive of a charity called London Youth, where I'd been for six years, which I loved, and was a full-time parent for over a year. And they went back to work. And then when I was appointed here four and a half years ago, we decided we didn't both want to be chief executives whilst having three small children. So Bex stopped being the chief executive of an access to justice charity. And I came to NCT. And the deal was that after five years, she had the right of return. And she's going back to work uh, full time in access to justice, has a wonderful opportunity. I'm very proud of her to go and do that now. So I will leave here at Christmas. Amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. That's a pretty brave decision. And I think it's brave because you're actually making a choice where there's no, you know, it's not a well-trodden path. There are not that many male role models for doing that. Was it always obvious that you would do that? Well, I don't, I don't, I I get a little bit squeamish talking about this because I I don't disagree with you, but I, I don't think it's brave. And look, you know, our kids are at school now, so I will do some days work a week. I'm going to do some consulting with Cass Business Schools sent for charity effectiveness. I'm a trustee of three organizations that are three charities that work with families and communities and children and young people. I'll, I'll retain those. 
And I'm going to go back to where I started and get involved one evening a week or fortnight at our local youth club as a volunteer youth worker. So I don't want to overclaim that, you know, I'm, it has been that I've been working full time and Bex has been working two days a week and we're just going to flip that. So that's the first thing to say. I don't want to overclaim how we're going to balance these things. And I don't think it's brave. I'm really wary. And I think being chief executive of NCT, I've become even more aware of how much judgment there is around parenting. From the moment you try to conceive a child, (laughs) the world then starts to judge you. And there are all sorts of micro ways in which people express their adulation or condemnation or somewhere between for the decisions we all take as parents from how we are in pregnancy. And I think this is particularly for women, obviously, you know, childbirth is gendered, okay, it's a feminist issue. Women in particular, I think, are judged from the get-go, judged about decisions about birth, in particular, I think, about decisions about how they feed their baby. We know that four out of five women stop breastfeeding before they want to. Decisions then about how we care for our children, where we send our children to school. You know, there is there is judgment and guilt laden within parenting. And so the way we're doing it is the way that seems to work for us. But anything that suggests it's brave or anything that sort of casts it in a positive light, I'm a bit wary of because that suggests that it's a better way of doing something. And I, I want to run a million miles away from that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. My partner and I, we both work four days a week. We've both set up two social enterprises at the same time in two completely different fields wow. while having in the last three years. Three, well, I'm, I'm not more sure com- about that. A lot more common. We can barely spell our own names. I'm not uh, sure. My, my mother says it, it's children. surprising that, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's surprising that we're still, still standing, but we are just about. But I think. What is interesting is that the reactions and responses. So for me, lots of people would have assumed that I would go part time. And, but I don't think that assumption was made of him at all. And perhaps obviously because of the person he is, that wasn't a big issue, but it's just interesting how, you know, the congratulations about making a choice to look after children is much more what he, expe- he experienced, but also people perhaps thinking about not is this person really serious about um, oh, being look, ambitious? I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, w- without wanting to sort of be narcissistic or get into a sort of history discussion, you know, my, I'm from the northwest of this country and both my grandmothers, who were born in 1893 and 1904, were both medics by career, which was reasonably unusual then, and were both to varying degrees involved in the feminist movement that, that grew out of Manchester. I, I was brought up believing that, uh, you know, that liberalism, feminism, the cooperative movement, all, all really progressive things started in Manchester. Now, I think they would be disappointed, frankly, by the fact that still, as a society, we make so many assumptions about motherhood as opposed to parenthood. And that's not in any way to suggest that there isn't something distinctive about motherhood and fatherhood. I think these are these are interesting ideas. But I think it is interesting that that even though the idea of children being brought up in same-sex couples, you know, my, my children go to school, none of my children actually are in a class that doesn't have a child with a same-sex couple as parents. Now, now that, that wouldn't have happened, you know, 50 years ago, a lot more recently than that. And I think there are all sorts of drivers where we would expect that and a number of other things to really have moved the situation that you describe on, I think, that we don't make assumptions that when children come along, it's going to be the woman 
who works part-time if either in the couple does. And I, I think that's troubling if I'm being honest, but yeah, but everyone does it differently. And, and I, you know, I think this is a difficult thing to talk about without implying any sort of judgment. You know, that, that we, we, we announced yesterday that I'm going to be leaving NCT. And I said in the way we framed the announcement that, that I'm going to go back to being a nearly full-time parent. And I really thought about the language we used. So as not to suggest in any way that the way we do it is better or anything like that. And I've got an email in my inbox today. It's a perfectly reasonable email. And I've really upset someone. I've really offended them because they've read that as the suggestion that they're not a full-time parent or they're not, they're not a parent when they're at work. And that's not what I meant at all. And, and it's, that's just an illustration. Mm. I feel I'm rambling. But I do think that it is really regrettable, the assumptions that are made. And, and, and Bex would say, you know, she's never actually enacted it, but she's definitely said she's going to have a policy of every time she hears people congratulate me for how we do it, just swearing at them gratuitously and loudly and reminding people that I was there when we decided to try and conceive these children. I think your observation resonates. When we think about supporting our partners, there's two really important precursors for that. One is we're very clear what exactly it is we're supporting. Now, I say this because time and time again, I found in my research, the couples who were struggling it wasn't because they didn't support each other. It was because they didn't quite understand what it was they were supporting. So they weren't clear about what their partner's goals were, what their partner's dreams were, and what their role was in that. And this was often a very sad situation because people genuinely have the best intentions. They were really trying to be supportive, but they were sort of pushing in the wrong direction. So the first thing is the partners really understood their role in each other's careers. Like, how can I help you? And where are you trying to go? And the second thing is, is the kind of support they offered was not just the tea and sympathy support we tend to think of in relationships. So, you know, I plump up your self-esteem. I make you feel good about yourself. This is lovely support, but it's not the support that this, the game-changing support. The game-changing support in couples vis-a-vis careers was this support, which I talk about in the book as being a secure base, which means there is that kind of cozy support. But the idea is, is that I also give you a bit of a loving kick rather than a loving cuddle. So it's slightly pushy. So let's imagine you come home after a a day in the office and you're like, oh, you know, I'm not a great day. I'm not sure, you know, maybe, you know, maybe I should look at a different role. Maybe I should look at a different organization. It's not the kind of support that's like, oh, don't worry, everything will be fine. You know, let me make you a cup of tea. It's the kind of support that's like, okay, you know, explain those feelings. What are those feelings about? Right, well, let's get out there. How can I support you to explore different options, to get out there, to take some risks? So it's a little bit more of a pushy support than a close support. Now, sometimes that kind of support doesn't feel particularly comfortable. But what I found over the long term was a very strong connection between couples who developed the ability to give each other that slightly more pushy support based on a deep knowledge of what their partner wanted to, you know, their partner's ambition and what they wanted out of their careers versus partners who were just giving them that kind of 
nice empathetic support, but without really understanding their role in their careers. So that's one thing that has a very, very strong connection between how we feel about our careers and our couple. I really like this finding because I think sometimes we can think of our relationship as just something that can take away from our career. But actually, I found the opposite. If people have a good relationship, it can be a real kind of secret weapon in our career success. Because if we think of most of our jobs, our partner is likely to outlast or any boss we have, all of our peers, any mentors, any relationship we have with an organization. And so they have a unique insight into our world. They're also, if they also work, they can be a great sounding board, advice. Sometimes they can genuinely help us practically in our careers. And so I think we also need to shift to thinking that our partners can be a real asset. And particularly when we shift this support, our partners can be a real asset for our careers. Mm, I absolutely love that. One other thing that resonated a lot with me from your book was this idea that there are different types of couple arrangements you can have in terms of your career, the dual career couples and so on. Can you tell me a bit more about that? So one of the big questions couples need to face early on, and I think particularly at the point when they start to have children and they start to build a family, is how do we prioritize our careers vis-a-vis each other? And what, what do I mean by this? I mean, who's the geographical leader if we were to move, move geographies, move country, move location? If there is, you know, if both of us need to travel for work, who's more likely to be able to do that? So who spends a bit more time and energy and places more importance on their career? And who places a little bit less importance on their career and maybe takes up a bit more of the slack at home? Now, there are three models of doing this. Of course, the traditional model is what we think of as primary secondary. You know, one person is in that primary position where they consistently place more emphasis on their career. And the other person is in the secondary position where they still have an important career, but they're just going at a slightly slower pace and they take up more of the slack at home. And of course, traditionally, it would have been in heterosexual couples, it would have been the man in the primary position and the woman in the secondary position. That's no longer the case. You know, sometimes it's the woman in the primary position, the man in the secondary position. And obviously, with same-sex couples, you know, that gender dynamic doesn't come into the picture. But now there are two more models that couples are taking. One is what I call turn-taking, which means that at any one time, you may be primary and I may be secondary, but time on time, we switch those roles. And this is particularly interesting around that time we're having children. So it may be that for a period I take, and certainly I did this, I took three years or so where I was still continuing my career. I was still working, but I actually went down to four days a week. So I was working part-time and taking up a bit more of the slack at home. And Jean-Pierre, my husband, was, you know, his career at that point in time was in that primary position, he was dedicating more time. And then later on, when the children got a little bit older, and I went back to full time, we switched positions a little bit. Now we more evened out, you know, but I stepped up and he stepped back a bit. So that's this idea of turn taking, where there's periods we push forward on our career and periods we spend a bit more time investing at home. When we have small children, Time is very, very precious. And there's always a thousand things to do on that to-do list. I think the first important thing to say is it does not take a whole weekend. You know, it's lovely to think about, I don't know, going to a mountain chalet in front of a log fire and having these conversations. That's lovely, but it doesn't take it. 
all it takes is 20 minutes with a cup of tea on the sofa when the kids are tucked up in bed. And I think that's really important to point out because sometimes we can make these conversations into a huge deal that we need to have completely planned out and we need to know what we're going to say and there needs to be a structure. No, this is having some dedicated time where we put our phones, our devices away, you know, 15, 20 minutes with a nice cup of tea, a nice glass of wine where we're dedicating 100% attention to each other and just saying, you know, hello to each other in a calm way. You know, what matters to you? How are things going? What can we do to make things better? How can we better support each other? And so I think couples who do this well do two things. One is they do that. They don't make these conversations into a big deal because when we do, then we start imagining all this time we need. And second is they build them into the fabric of their relationship. So let me give you a couple of examples. There was one couple I spoke to, a slightly older couple, but they've been doing this for 20 years. And she said, well, you know, every Saturday morning, we have a boulangerie meeting. And I said, okay. And they go down to their local bakery for 45 minutes. That's it. And she said, we always sit in the same table and we always get the same cup of coffee and croissant. And we sit there and this is our little ritual on a Saturday morning where we sit there and we know phones and we just talk. We talk about the week, how are we feeling, you know, what are the things that are coming up? We talk about careers, we talk about life. And so it's a little ritual that's in their week, 45 minutes a week. You know, who can't afford that? Other couples don't do it so regularly. It might be every couple of months, but we'll take time just to sit down maybe over a dinner out maybe one night after the kids are in bed. But it's this idea of making it a habit. So it doesn't become such a big emotional thing to tackle. Likewise, many couples do this on their anniversary. So I know my husband and I always talk about this sort of in the new year. And because we're both academics, of course, at the beginning of the school year, right, in in September. So these are the two points where we just know we're going to talk about this stuff. Now, we very often talk about it in between as well. But these are just two natural transition points in the year where we revisit these conversations. For some people, it might be, you know, birthdays or other important points. But it's about developing a habit of knowing these conversations are coming up and they just become normal in your couple. But it doesn't require a special retreat or a fancy dinner or anything like that. Yeah, I can really resonate with that. I read some research recently about creating new habits and the idea was that you link whatever new habit you want to create to an existing habit, like that breakfast. You're going to eat breakfast on a Saturday morning anyways. So making a habit for 10 minutes to put away your phones and just talk is very powerful. My partner and I tend to have these conversations while we're going for walks, while the kids sleep. So our three and a half year old still sometimes sleeps when she's exhausted. So we take two prams with toddler and preschooler and we go for long walks. And it's really transformative to have those conversations. And, and the other, a couple of weeks ago, I injured myself and we couldn't do that for a few weeks. And it, it had just such an impact. And I think sometimes we don't even notice how important those conversations yeah. are. Another good time is car ride, car journeys, long car journeys are great for this when the kids fall asleep in the back. But I think this is it because the idea of a car journey, a walk, something like this is the undivided attention. And I think when I talk to couples these days and say, you know, when was the last time you had just 10 minutes, 10 minutes with absolutely no distractions, no phone, no kids, no TV, no nothing, just the two of you. And it's shocking 
how long for many couples that's been because life is busy and we make all these excuses. But I say to couples, you know, if you can't afford 10 minutes in a week, that's saying something about your relationship. You know, we can all find 10 minutes to do our Facebook account. So if we can find 10 minutes to do Facebook or LinkedIn or Instagram, we should jolly well be able to find 10 minutes to divide, you know, to really dedicate undivided attention to each other. And I think it's so easy to start this, you know, we can all start tonight, you know, when our partner comes home from work or when you know, we see them at the end of the day, just, you know, put down your phone and look at them and just say, you know, how was your day? And then listen, don't pick up anything else. Don't get distracted. Don't interrupt. Just listen for two or three minutes and you will find an enormous change in your relationship from two or three minutes at the end of the day. You know, we can all do this. So I was kind of juggling being a new dad with writing the longest book I'd ever written. Ruth did a lot of the house work and stuff. And then when Ruth went back to work, we'd never had a conversation about the sort of split of the boring life admin stuff. And she was continuing to do it because we kind of got into this pattern of, of her doing it because that's what it had been like for months. And I hadn't realized that that's what had happened until Ruth said, well, hang on a minute, we've got to, you know, there's too much mental load for me. I'm working full time thinking about these things. So I think if we hadn't sat down and worked out a proper action plan of you know writing down everything that we do between us and then rejigging it so that it was equally shared between us, that could have become a a source of increased friction. I think we got ahead of it reasonably quickly, but yeah, over Christmas, we sort of sat down and made it fair, but that, yeah, that could have been, if it had been left to fester, it could have been more. Can you just explain the mental load for the listeners? Just all the sort of day-to-day things that you have to do in terms of washing the baby's clothes and changing the sheets and, but also things, you know, sorting out the car insurance and, you know, government childcare account and nursery and making sure that everything is, you know, all that household stuff. And I guess Ruth was leading on a lot of that stuff whilst on maternity leave. But yeah, we needed to realign that once we were both back to work. And I think the word that used is interesting, leading. So it's not actually just about doing the stuff, but who is the person who keeps on top of their mind the to-do list for that certain area, whether it's holiday booking or whatnot. Yeah, exactly that. And I think Ruth was, she, you, you can explain for yourself, but you said, you'd said to me, you know, that use the phrase mental load, that you know, I've got so much on my mind that I'm thinking these things have to be done that we need to a new system. So I said, okay, let's sit down and be very analytical about it and, and you know, work out, here's my list, because I wouldn't think about it. But if there's a list and I, I look after my daughter on a Monday, I have Mondays off with her. That's one of the good things about working for yourself is, is that, that now I have a list of things that I have to get done on a Monday in order to make an equal contribution. Yeah, like what prompted this conversation partly was I read an article about essentially describing that you shouldn't try and be the project manager for your family because otherwise you're organizing all of the tasks, you're leading on all of the tasks, you're also doing a huge proportion of them. And even if you've got a supportive partner who is doing their share, doing their bit, the thinking behind all of that still sits with you. And when you've got a busy career and you want to be present as a parent, and then you've got all of that on top of it, it's too much, I think, to balance successfully. So now I feel like we've got a much better balance in the sense that there are things that Colin is entirely responsible for. There are things that I'm entirely responsible for. And of course, we'll support each other as and when we need to. 
but I don't have to carry it all in my head of everything that needs to, to happen and be done, which is quite freeing in a way. I guess one thing that we have fine-tuned actually is that we recognize that if one of us is struggling for whatever reason, whether that's workload or just emotionally, we need to step up and be there for the other person. And so that might mean kind of not being so fixed on, well, that's yours task and this is mine, but actually being a bit more flexible around it and knowing that it will sort of round out in the end. Thank you for listening. I hope you found this thought-provoking. If you want more support and resources, there is a specific couples page on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash couples. You can sign up to events, for example, a event for dual career couples coming up in September. There's a checklist for things to talk about before you return from maternity leave or share parent leave with your partner and a few other useful things. If this has been helpful and if you want to join us and if you just want to connect with people who also believe in our mission of that we should be able to combine big careers with young children, then definitely consider getting involved. On our website, leadersplus.org.uk, you can see an overview of upcoming events, including the one on couples that I've just mentioned. And if you are very senior, you can also apply to become a senior leader mentor. If you are a parent with kids between the ages of 0 and 11, definitely consider applying for our award-winning fellowship program. We run our cross-sector fellowship um, every year, and we've done so for five years now. And new is that we're launching a specific version for parents in the NHS this autumn who want to progress their careers. There, you'll get access to inspirational role models who have experience of bringing up kids whilst progressing their careers. You'll get support with practical challenges, for example, workload management or saying no, and you'll develop your vision and make a plan for career and family life in small group sessions. You will also access research about effective career progression as a working parent. And actually, Jennifer Bretrieri from this episode has also featured in our reading list for that. So, yeah, hopefully it will be really useful. We get excellent feedback and um, it's been described as life changing and so on. So, um, yeah, definitely consider applying and don't let finances put off, put you off. There are hardship fund spaces for those who need them. And also there are some posts from previous fellows about how they convinced their employers to fund them. Yep. So you can find everything that you need to find on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash NHS fellowship. Have a wonderful week and I speak to you next week again, hopefully. Hold up. 